Good morning, my beloved friends, and welcome back to the fourth and final sermon in our series, What Does Love Require? Each week we have held up this question next to both the gospel text assigned for the day and the events and context of our lives right now to wonder together about what is being asked of us as followers of Christ. What and how and why are we called to move from comfort to courage, to challenge some of our deepest assumptions, to explore different ways of living and loving as children of God? In today's gospel, we find Jesus once again turning things upside down, admonishing the religious leaders of his time, saying, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. In other words, you who think you are better or more righteous or deserving because you are educated or white or employed or covered by insurance or registered to vote or able-bodied or housed or straight or free or, or, or you fill in the blank. Think again, he says. None of these things, according to Jesus, assure you a better place in line. It's a common approach and a teaching tool used by Jesus throughout all of Scripture. Time and time again, Jesus underscores the idea, like last week, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And for those of us who identify as living on the margin in any way, it is a comforting and often redeeming perspective. It forms the heart of what we call liberation theology. It informs efforts of restorative justice and demands courage over comfort and the requirement of challenging the status quo time and time again. It is a perspective that breathes new life and hope and the promise of justice and mercy for the least of these. And while all of that is probably not anything new to hear today, what I have often overlooked is the implication that everyone in Jesus's scenario is still going to be in the line, perhaps at the back, but everyone is still included. Perhaps that's obvious, but for me, I need to remember that, hard as it is sometimes, maybe especially these days, when I am angry or hurt or mad or unable to see another's perspective as valid or right, this teaching of Jesus's is much deeper and goes way beyond my capacity to emulate it much of the time. And today, as we wrap up this sermon series, and as we struggle with what feels like an unprecedented tenor of social tension, political division, palpable heartache, and a blanket of fear of what might lie ahead in the coming months, I am grateful for this reminder. I take comfort in this image, even as I wrestle with it. A picture of an endless line with all of us, broken and blessed on our way to the kinship of heaven here on earth. I have to remind myself it is a spiritual teaching. It is a vision, an image of what might be, even if we are nowhere near it today. I am grateful also because I see in this gospel's, gospel story 
a strong indictment of something that I am often guilty of and should probably place me all the way back at the end of the proverbial line, equivocation. The chief priests and elders confront Jesus about the source of his authority. And he responds with a question of his own. He asks, did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? The elders see immediately that they are in a no-win position. They are trapped between their arrogance and their fear. They know the right answer and that giving that answer will expose the vulnerabilities of their own position. But if they give the answer they want, then they will invoke the crowd's indignation. So what do they do? They do what I think we do, or at least I will confess I do too much of the time. They decide not to make a choice. They decide not to take a stand. Instead, they look for a safe way out. They exercise their privilege because they can, not unlike how I exercise my white privilege time and time again. When they say, we do not know, they equivocate, a word that in its Latin roots means to call the same, as in equal, or to use ambiguous language so as to conceal the truth or avoid committing oneself. Sound familiar? The religious leaders then refuse to acknowledge aloud the differences between the two possibilities, essentially calling them equal by their non-answer answer. And oh, how often I have done the very same thing. To be fair, I know why I have done it. Equivocating often seems like a safer option. There are many good reasons for holding difficult subjects in careful balance, but that does not make it right, especially when equivocating flies in the face of what love requires. Particularly right now, in our toxic, polarized world, the ability to navigate issues is so very understandable, and yet what love requires of us is much, much more. So as we turn the final corner of these four weeks, what is it that love requires today? Is there a bolder, braver, more gospel-based response? Is there a way to still live with tension and paradox to somehow lead others out of tweet-sized theology and into a full encounter with the complexity of what love requires? I have discovered one possible antidote to the sin of equivocation in our lives from perhaps an unlikely source. Over the summer, I was invited by Trinity member Amy Saylor to read a new book titled Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Practices to Build a Better World. Its author, Jacqueline Novogratz, is the founder and CEO of Acumen, a company that invests pioneering philanthropic capital in sustainable businesses addressing the toughest problems of poverty around the globe. So yes, it's a secular business book of sorts, 
but one that captivated my attention most especially by offering the imperative idea of moral imagination. She writes, moral imagination means to view other people's problems as if they were your own and to begin to discern how to tackle those problems from that perspective and then to act accordingly. It summons us to understand and transcend the realities of current circumstances and to envision a better future for ourselves and others. Moral imagination starts with empathy, but it is not content simply to feel another's pain. Empathy without action risks reinforcing the status quo. Moral imagination is muscular, built from the bottom up and grounded through immersion in the lives of others. It involves connecting on a human level, analyzing the systemic issues at play, and only then envisioning how to go beyond applying a Band-Aid to make a longer difference, a long dif time difference possible. This love requirement gets right to the heart of the gospel message today and blows up any hope that we have of hiding behind the status quo. Equivocating is no longer an option, if it ever was, when we say that we are following Christ. To imagine a different answer other than I don't know or I don't want to know will take both courage and moral imagination from each of us and from our entire community. So where do we go from here? How do these love requirements get grafted into our daily lives and the choices we make beyond today? I want to ask this of each of us, and I don't want it to be a rhetorical question. I want to end this series reminding us of where we have traveled over these past four weeks and some of the ideas that we have been asked to consider. And then I want to conclude with an invitation. We began our journey wondering if one of the requirements of love is compassion. We heard Jesus elevating the power of relationships over rules making room for each other in the building up of the beloved community. The next week, we focused on the importance of forgiveness and the act of forgiving, another challenging love requirement for many of us, and during a particularly painful time for so many of our Black, Indigenous, people of color brothers and sisters. Then last week, through the parable of the laborers in the field and the modern-day story of Tom Wilson, we explored the power of God's mercy. We wondered if our willingness to receive what author and storyteller Megan McKenna calls a shock of grace could affect us. And we ended with the outrageous suggestion that if we dare to be shocked by grace, we may also discover the joy of experiencing God's mercy in our own lives, regardless of where we find ourselves in the lineup waiting to receive our fair wage. And so we come to the end of this series with the invitation to work on cultivating moral imagination, the willingness to resist equivocating or 
maintaining the status quo, especially when the result is a privileged outcome for some and not all. And instead, live with an open posture, eager to learn and grow and change. So now what? How willing are we to wrestle with one or more of these love requirements going forward? What would that look like in our lives? I want to know what this might mean in your life. I've thought about it quite a bit, and so I'll begin. I'll begin by sharing where this has led me today and extend an invitation for you to join me on this if you are willing and able. I am going to commit to work with and through Leila Saeed's book, Me and White Supremacy. Based on a 28-day challenge she ran through Instagram in 2018, this is now a book designed to encourage people who hold white privilege to examine our racist thoughts and behaviors through a process of deep reflection and journaling. I am committing to work through this material between now and the end of November on my own. It is work I will do alone, and I invite you to consider doing the same if you too hold white privilege. Then during the month of December, after working through the material on our own, and during the season of Advent, we will offer a number of opportunities to come together and reflect on what we have learned. This is not a requirement for anybody, but it is an invitation for everybody. This is work I feel I need to do personally, and maybe you too are ready to do this work in order to stop consciously and unconsciously inflicting damage on those brothers and sisters who are black or indigenous or people of color. It is one way to engage these love requirements, especially moral imagination, calling us to reimagine our role as we desire to be a force for good in dismantling systemic racism and the roles we have played maintaining the status quo. For me, the time is now. Maybe it is for you too. Leila Seed summarizes this work in a way that so beautifully and I think succinctly answers the question that we have been wrestling with for these four weeks. What does love require? She writes, awareness leads to action and action leads to change. Create the change the world needs by creating change within yourself. So thank you for walking this road together. You are needed and a beloved companion. And when all of this, as it does so often right now, feel overwhelming and we doubt that any one of us can truly make a difference, that is the time to commit to memory, the beautiful words of Sufi mystic and poet Rumi. You are not a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. And may you never forget that you are loved. May it be so.